please note, our use of the Cleveland Indians moniker in this episode is strictly for historical purposes and does not reflect our views of Native Americans. Thank you. everybody to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel. Lucas, have we seen a bigger anomaly in World Series history than what we're going to see in this episode? Maybe another one in a few years' time in a very similar story, but let's stay in 1997 for right now as we're in an era where baseball has expanded a little bit. We talked a little bit about it in our 1994 episode which you know obviously didn't happen in reality was the first season of expanded divisions where we had the three and then what should have been the wild card that didn't end up happening 1995 ended up becoming the first postseason where that actually was the case and as a part of that though we had some new teams that entered the fray and one of them is this little upstart group that brought baseball to the state of florida at least at the major league level for the first time, and that is the Florida Marlins. That's right, the Florida Marlins, who just began play in 1993 in their fifth season of play, become the fastest team ever to get to the World Series. Wayne Huizenga, the blockbuster video mogul, decided that he wanted to spend a lot of money in order to win. It could have been an experiment to see if baseball would indeed work in South Florida, But regardless of his intentions, he authorized the spending of $90 million to sign, among others, Jim Eisenreich, whom we have talked about, Bobby Bonilla, Alex Fernandez, Moises Alou, and that is just the very tip of the iceberg. And we will get more into the players that really made up this team as we go into this episode The Marlins winning 92 games, winning the wild card. But uh, Isenga announced that he expected the team to finish $34 million in the red for the year. Although at least one sports economist said he was actually $13 million in the black. And he said this on the grounds that the team would have to be dismantled unless the taxpayers voted to build him a new stadium. Probably not the best way to strong-arm fans, especially now when people have gotten wiser to sports owners strong-arming the public for new stadiums. But hey, billionaires are going to do whatever they want. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, this whole strong-arming thing into, I'm going to contract the team, remove the team if you don't build me a stadium, is something that still continues today. It's an absolute grift. It's a joke. But it's the name of the game, unfortunately. Jim Leland is the guy at the helm of these Florida Marlins, and they are somehow running rough shots through the National League playoffs, first taking care of the Giants in three straight in the NLDS, and then upsetting the defending National League champion Atlanta Braves. So the Marlins are going to the World Series for the first time. Although it comes at cost, Alex Fernandez gets hurt during the NLCS. We will not see him in this World Series. 
No, but this is still a uh, pretty packed team. The rotation anchored by a couple of good guys. Al Leiter, a veteran, a guy who has appeared in prior episodes. Went 11-9, posted a 434 ERA. But the one-two punch for this group, it's Kevin Brown, who went 16-8, and posted a 269, had a team-high 205 strikeouts. And then this 21-year-old kid by the name of Levon Hernandez, who made 17 regular season starts, went 9-3, and posted a 318 earned run average. Those are the mainstays. You have Rob Nen at closer, who saved 35 games. And then a couple other decent bullpen pieces. Antonio Alfonseca was a late call-up, pitched in 17 games, posted an ERA of almost 5. Felix Heredia with a 429 ERA went 5-3 and three over the course of the season, just to name a couple of guys. And Levon Hernandez is the perfect ambassador for the Marlins because the city of Miami has its little Havana neighborhood that is highlighted during this World Series film. And it is so-called because of the huge influx of Cubans who live in that part of Miami. I mean, the Marlins were already seeking out Latino players actively for the purpose of marketing them to that crowd. In all, 12 of the 48 players to appear in this World Series would be Hispanic. But Levon Hernandez was really seen as one of their own because a couple of years earlier, he defected from Cuba, as have many other Cuban baseball players over the years. And they really saw him as the guy to watch and the guy to get behind because he really knew what these people had gone through under the reign of Fidel Castro and would continue to endure under Castro for a few more years. So people were really embracing a kid who had the weight of a world on his shoulders, even though he was very young. And probably giving him even more sympathy is that he was having a good season without the support of his family stateside. They had to follow him from Cuba. We'll get more into that in a little bit. But Levon Hernandez, even though he might not be the best player or the most talented player on this team, as far as the Cuban community in Miami was concerned, he was the Florida Marlins. Hernandez ended up winning NLCS MVP as well. He won two of the four games for the Marlins in that series. He won game three, a pivotal one there. And then with the series netted at two, he then proceeded to also win game five for the series. Hernandez, we mentioned that 2-0 record in 084 earned run average, and he struck out 16 guys in 10 and two-thirds innings. So... Obviously, you know, you've got the whole Cuban ties, very heavily Cuban area in Miami, and just the success there, everything kind of ties together. He will have to go up along with the rest of the Marlins pitching staff against the Cleveland Indians back after a one-year hiatus. Not really much to talk about with them other than they are the same team, more or less, that got to the World Series in 1995. But their World Series drought is now at 49 years. And they have to be thinking in the back of their minds that we got to get this done. Because if we don't, then that last World Series win from 1948 is just going to get further and further into the past. And we know that the Jacobs Field crowds are packing it every night. So at the very least, they feel like they owe it to those fans to finally get them that World Series championship. And they're not going to let this ragtag team from South Florida let them have a crown that they believe should be theirs. 
Well, and the Indians end up bringing in a couple of guys who we have heard from in recent podcasts, uh, Marquise Grissom and David Justice, a couple of new faces to this squad. Grissom hit 262, 12 home runs, stole 22 bases for the Indians in 1997. David Justice, second on the team with 33 home runs. He hit 329. Jim Tomei continuing to do Jim Tomei things, hit 40 home runs, drove in 102. Matt Williams with a 32 homer, 105 RBI campaign. He's another hired gun having appeared back in 1989's World Series. Also, good luck getting anything by that left side of the infield because both Matt Williams and Omar Vizquel won gold gloves. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a major part here, too. The other thing to make note of is that neither of these teams had particularly good records during the season. We mentioned that the Marlins went 92-70, and 70, and the Indians, despite winning the AL Central, went 86-75, and 75, but this is what the expanded playoff format intended. Gone are the days of just the top team in each league making it to the Fall Classic because we've expanded. And just having 15 teams fighting for one spot, not really kind of the best way to do it. And so the result of that is you're going to have an occasional World Series that's decided by a team that didn't have quite as successful of a regular season going on a week and a half, two week heater to get to this point. But that doesn't make them any less of champions. And we are going to see this a lot on our podcast from now on. So this is the first World Series that I remember kind of sort of following as far as the action was concerned. And helping that fact was at the start of this World Series, my family was vacationing in, of all places, Disney World. And we were staying at the All-Star Sports Resort. Very good place if you wanted to stay at Cheap Disney Resort. And we were staying at the Touchdown Hotel. It was called Touchdown. And right across from it was the Home Run Hotel. The whole complex is divided into various hotels. And what I remember about that was if you go to the Home Run Hotel, you see the various pendants of Major League teams on the facade. And I'm pretty sure that this was the case back then. It doesn't appear to be this anymore, but... I kind of remember at eight years old that the pendants for the Indians and the Marlins were right next to each other. How about that? That's kind of crazy that that just kind of happened to work out that way. And at the time, I was still getting into baseball, so I didn't quite know where the Marlins were. All I knew was that they were the Florida Marlins, and me being in Florida while the World Series was going on in Florida, albeit several miles south of where I was, my reaction was, hey, I'm in Florida. I should root for the Florida Marlins. Well, I mean, that's perfect eight-year-old logic to me. So let us get into this first game. And we have a huge age gap between our Game 1 starters. We have Levon Hernandez going for the Marlins. Oral Hershiser is going for the Indians. These two are 17 years apart. Hernandez was 8 years old when Hershiser made his MLB debut with the Dodgers in 1983. I wonder how much that is on the mind of the 67,245 who are in attendance at Game 1. And usually Pro Player Stadium doesn't have that many seats available. But because it's in a football stadium, they are opening up every seat possible in order to get the biggest crowd possible. Kind of similar to the olden days of the World Series when if a team was playing a smaller stadium that's crosstown rival, they would use the other stadium in order to maximize profits. Or we had the temporary bleacher situations that took place for a long time in a lot of those early series as well. I mean, this kind of similar, just using the existing space. 
So here is the action for game one. Bip Roberts, one of my favorite baseball names of all time, doubles to lead off the game. He moves to third on a sack bunt by Omar Vizquel and later scores on RBI double by David Justice. Leon Hernandez strikes out the side in a second, though, so a nice job by him to recover. Craig Council doubles to lead off the third, and he later scores on RBI ground out by Edgar Renteria, who's 21 years old and the first Colombian to play in the World Series. And here in the fourth inning is when the first World Series highlights that I truly remember happened. It was just a routine play, but for some reason it stood out. I remember I was watching in the cafeteria of the All-Star Sports Resort. They had the World Series on because, hey, sports theme, World Series, it kind of goes together. And Jim Tomey, who was in a big slump in the postseason, was fourth for 30 coming into this at bat. He was leading off the fourth inning. He has a line drive at first base, and Darren Dalton makes this leaping catch, jumps in the air, as Bob Costa says, right into the glove of Darren Dalton. And again, that's really something that would play on a highlight reel for the most part. But this line drive catch by the late great Darren Dalton was the first thing that I truly remember about this World Series. So it just goes to show you how much of an impact a routine play can have on a kid just getting into baseball kind of a hot shot nice play there and it ends up looming kind of large Marquise Grissom would end up doubling with two outs in the inning and if Tomei ends up getting that ball through he possibly scores instead we remain tied at one going into the bottom half of the fourth where the Marlins start going to work yep Bobby Benilla walks on four pitches to lead off the fourth inning then the aforementioned Dalton has an infield single after Hershiser did not cover first on a ground ball to second and then Moises Alou hits a three-run home run 0-2 count off of the left field foul pole, despite an earlier debate about whether he should have bunted. But Moises Alou is not the guy that you ask to bunt, and you know that from his later years with the Cubs. Indeed. Definitely uh, the guy you want swinging away, he rewards it. And then Charles Johnson, another fun uh, guy that we'll go into a connection on a little bit later. He follows that up with a solo home run down the left field line, and all of a sudden it's 5-1 Marlins. He hopers that to the left field upper deck to be exact. That's the first time that back-to-back home runs have been hit in the World Series as the Red Sox's Dwight Evans and Rich Gedman led off the second inning of Game 7 of the 1986 World Series. But May Ramirez shows the Indians still have life. He hits a solo home run to left with two outs in the fifth inning. But the Marlins go right back to work in the bottom half. Sheffield walks with one out. He moves to third on Benilla's single. He scores out Jeff Conine RBI single. So Hershiser is coming out of the game. But he doesn't really get a lot of relief because the man who comes in for him, Jeff Juden, throws a wild pitch. And that allows Benilla to score. Jim Tomey does his solo home run to left with one out in the sixth inning. That is his first home run since September 14th against the White Sox. Then Sandy Almar Jr. and Marquise Grissom hit back-to-back singles. But Hernandez strikes out a pinch hitter for Jude and Jeff Branson. And uh, then he is removed from the game for Dennis Cook. And then the World Series film highlights an angry outburst Hernandez had in the dugout. We see him throw his glove and his cap because he felt like he could have done more. And for his part, he threw five and two-thirds innings. I mean, yeah, eight hits, three runs, two walks, five strikeouts. Not the sexiest line ever, but he did the job. I think he was just a little too hard on himself. And it doesn't really matter, even though with one out in the ninth inning, Rob Nank gives up back-to-back singles to Justice and Williams. He strikes out Tommy and Elmar to complete the save. The Marlins win this first game 7-2-4. Hernandez is not happy with that performance, as we saw 
but I don't think anyone really cared because he got that first win. He did. Uh, through 60 of his 101 pitches for strikes, you mentioned the couple of other numbers. He allowed two home runs, which I'm sure kind of part of the feeling a little bit frustrated for those of you keeping track. He posted a game score of 44, which I believe you start the game out with a 50, and then you get more for striking guys out and getting through innings. It goes down for hits and runs allowed, and I don't remember the exact formula. So not a great outing, and so understandable to be a little bit frustrated there, but probably overdoing it with the outburst a little bit and his teammates eventually go to get him calmed down and say look you did your job we won game one it's all good after this game the commissioner's office is hit with a big tragedy because intern john seidler is killed after falling from a 12th floor hotel balcony and the world series film is dedicated to his memory i had to look up to see who that was and it is too bad that for the second straight year after Mel Allen's passing in 1996, we have a World Series film dedicated to someone's memory. And while Mel Allen had his whole life behind him when he died, this is someone whose life is just starting. And it's just really sad. Yeah, it's un very unfortunate. Kevin Brown starts Game 2 with no losses in his past 14 starts. His last one came July 27th against the Cardinals. Omar Vizquel doubles with one out. He moves to third on Ramirez ground out. He scores on an RBI single by Justice, although he is caught stealing to end the inning. The Marlins go back in the bottom half. Renteria walks with one out. Sheffield is hit on the hand. He had an injury history with. And then Conine later drives in Renteria on an RBI single. Moises Alou barely misses a home run to left field to end the inning, but he doubles to lead off the fourth, but he is promptly thrown out at third on a fielder's choice after taking a bad jump. And Matt Williams makes that pay with a single to lead off the fifth inning. He moves to second on LMR single. He scores on RBI single by Grissom, who ends up tying Roberto Clemente's record 14-game series hit streak. Another man that we are going to hear a lot about, Chad OJ, advances the runners on a sack bunt. Alomar scores on the Bip Roberts RBI single. Then Sandy Alomar gets a two-run homer to left with one out in the sixth inning. Not a good night for Kevin Brown. Six to one Indians in game two. Chad OJ doing a good job here in this one. He goes six and two-thirds, allows just a single run on seven hits, strikes out four batters. Michael Jackson and Jose Mesa combined to allow just one hit over the final two and a third innings of this one. And the Indians do exactly what they needed to do here. They salvage the split in the first two games in Miami. Yeah, we go from sunny, warm Miami to chilly Cleveland. It had a 23-degree wind chill at game time. But it doesn't seem to affect Gary Sheffield because he hits a solo home run to left with two outs in the first inning, despite the sore wrist from being hit in Game 2. But maybe Sheffield was immune to the cold because of him spending the early part of his career in Milwaukee. Entirely possible, and you know, I'm sure all of the padding and extra layers didn't hurt either. And he did this despite the fact that the Marlins were staying in a rundown hotel in a bad part of Cleveland. As one player said about the place, if you cross the street, you die. And the Marlins were wearing parkers and mittens during batting practice, and there were portable heaters sitting atop the dugouts to warm both teams. And Charles Nagy and Al Leiter, the stars for this game, are not able to grip the ball properly, and they're struggling with their control. And spoiler alert, nine relievers will foul them. But we'll get more into that as we go along here in the bottom half of the first inning. Bip Roberts reaches on a lighter error to lead off the first inning. He later scores on a Williams RBI single. 
Justice, who had walked with two outs, then scored on Alomar RBI single. Johnson singles to lead off the top of the third. He scores after three straight Marlins walks. Dalton leads off the fourth with a home run to right center. Leiter then walks four batters in the fourth inning. Then Ramirez has an RBI infield single. Another run scores on a Benilla error at third. Elmar singles back to Leiter with one out in the fourth inning. And then he scores on a Tomey two-run homer to right. Dalton walks with one out in the sixth inning. He later scores on an Eisenreich two-run homer to right. So Eisenreich, once again, after contributing to the Phillies World Series effort in 93, is contributing once again a few years later. Benia saves an RBI base hit by Williams with two outs in the sixth inning. He throws to first to end the threat. Then you have Brian Anderson relieving Nagy to lead off the seventh. He gives up a leadoff single to Council, who moves to second on a Devon White ground out. Michael Jackson relieves Anderson. Then Renteria scores Council on RBI single. Sheffield promptly scores Renteria on RBI double to tie the game. And then Sheffield, who did work with his bat earlier, just worked with his glove. With one out in the seventh inning, he robs Tomey of the second home run of the game in right field. So Sheffield making a difference from deep on both sides. Yeah, hard to say with that ball, too, if it would have actually been a home run because it almost looks like he makes the catch short and then almost gets a little bit of a boost as he goes into the wall. While it looks like it's robbing a home run, I'm not sure. I mean, at minimum, he's robbing Tomey of extra bases. I mean, I would agree with you that that was probably not going to be a home run, but you can't take a chance like that. And even if it goes off the wall, that's going to be extra bases. So good job by him to get in position to make that. Bobby Benilla walks to lead off the ninth inning. He promptly scores when he moves to third on a Dalton single and is allowed to score when Grissom's Aaron's throw from center goes into the camera well at Jacobs Field. Ultimately, the Marlins send 11 men to the plates in the inning. They score seven runs on four hits and three errors. Rob Nemer leaves Cook to begin the ninth inning, but he needs 43 pitches to finish the game. The Indians end up scoring four runs on three hits. The final score for this one is 14-11. Those 25 runs are the second most in series history. Four hours and 12 minutes. That's the second longest game in series history. 17 walks and six errors. The one thing I do look at now, you know, we talked about a lot of pitchers in this one. The Marlins end up using four because part of it is, you know, Al Leiter got absolutely lit up in this game. Didn't make it out of the fifth, gave up seven runs, four of them earned, had six walks to just three strikeouts through 114 pitches. Less than ideal. Felix Heredia does a great job of limiting the damage he throws, two and a third hitless innings. Dennis Cook ends up getting the win, pitching a scoreless bottom of the eighth prior to that seven-run outburst by the Marlins. I mean, to some degree, I question the use of Rob Nen when it's a seven-run lead, but I also don't know definitively what the bullpen situation was like here. I mean, you could have potentially used Alfonseca to name one guy. I mean, I don't know why you'd burn through your closer and have him throw 43 pitches right after an off day when your team is up seven. So game four is to put it lightly chaotic not just as far as the game conditions but everything happening around Jacobs Field while game four is going on the circus is happening at adjacent Gund Arena and there's a Motley Crew concert happening at the Cleveland State University Convocation Center only three blocks away and on top of all that it's snowing in Cleveland and we have a series record low 38 degrees for the first pitch and this snow is more prominent before the game. But to go from sunny Miami to this, what the heck? 
I mean, that's a very stark difference. I mean, really the only way you could have it be more stark would be to go from an indoor venue to someplace like this. I would argue like kind of the closest comparison now would be to say, go from Arizona and inside at Chase Field to say Target Field, for example. Sure, that's fair. Interestingly, Phil Necro throws out the first pitch before Game 4, even though he only pitched with the Indians for the final two seasons of his career. But in any event, we have the sixth rookie matchup in World Series history. Jared Wright, who is only a few years removed from high school, and Tony Saunders going for the Marlins. At 21 years, 9 months, and 23 days, Wright is the youngest pitcher to start a series game since Brett Saberhagen at 21 years, 6 months, and 11 days in Game 3 of the 85 series for the Royals. With one out to the first inning, Renteria singles and Sheffield walks, but Bobby Benet into a 4-6-3 double play to end the inning. Fiscal singles with one out in the first and promptly scores on Ramirez, two-run homer to right. Williams has an infield single with two outs. He promptly scores on Almar, RBI double on a play at the plate. Then Ramirez walks to lead off the third and later scores on a Justice infield single to short after a Williams walk. Justice scores on Almar, RBI single on a 3-1 pitch. Tommy walks and that prompts Alfonseco to relieve Saunders after only two-plus innings. And Tony Fernandez scores Williams on an RBI single. Dalton does walk with one out in the sixth inning and promptly scores on a lose two-run homer to left field. And then Eisenreich singles, but Johnson lines to a Tommy unassisted double play at first. Then David Justice walks with one out in the eighth inning and scores when Williams becomes the seventh player to homer for both leagues in the series, hitting it to left. Williams previously homered for the Giants in Game 3 of the 1989 series. Anderson pitches three innings of one hit, no walk, shutout ball to earn the save. The Indians have tied this series with a 10-3 victory. You have great bounce back for the Indians here. And I mean, you have to have a little bit of nerves in the World Series film even brought this up going into the ninth with that seven run lead and the Marlins having just scored seven in the ninth the night before, but they get through it. Jarrett Wright does a good job in his World Series debut, allows just three runs on five hits. Does walk five, but strikes out five, so it ends up being a quality start. And you mentioned Brian Anderson going the final three innings to earn the save. He strikes out two and allows just the single hit. I am glad that Tony Saunders did get into a World Series game, even though the pressure was high because he only had four major league wins under his belt. Because a couple of years later, Saunders would become the victim of one of the most gruesome in-game injuries ever caught on camera when his arm snapped when he was throwing a pitch and he would never return to the major leagues, his career ending prematurely. So I'm glad that Tony Saunders, at the very least, got to experience this before he had this just terrible thing happened to him i wish that he had had a little bit more success than he did in this game but he was able to come out and play in a world series good for him a world series which by the way is not winning over the scribes or the commissioner sports illustrate is calling this the faux classic because of the awful playing conditions and the quality of the games Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe wrote, It is as if the Marlins and Indians are using this World Series to officially kill baseball. And Bud Selig, who is at this point in his 1,868th day as interim commissioner, is upset. He says, We have pitchers who can't throw the ball over the plate, and when they do, it hits the wall somewhere. You're going to have a long game. But he conveniently forgets to mention the fact that he had approved extended advertising time between innings, which contributed to the longer game times. 
and I'm sure that this is not going to become an issue whatsoever in the future. Oh no, not at all, says the dude with the background in advertising. So let's go into game five, which, by the way, shows Indians fans coming to the game wearing high socks, which was an inspiration from Jim Tomey. Indians players decided to pay tribute to him on his birthday earlier this year by all wearing high socks, and the Indians fans have taken note of that and are wearing that. Jim Tomey, great guy in baseball. But he can't stop the Marlins from doing damage in the second inning. Darren Dalton leads it off the ground rule double on fan interference. He later scores on an RBI single into the Bermuda Triangle by Charles Johnson, who later scores on a white RBI double. Concho, who had watched, was thrown out of the plate, however, on a 9-4-2 relay to end the inning. Tommy, however, does contribute with a triple with one out to the second inning. He promptly scores on Elmer RBI single. And then Brian Giles and Roberts walk, and Hernandez induces a Vizquel lineouts to end the inning. And Williams and Tommy walk the third inning, and Elmar has a three-run home run to left. That gives him a postseason record 19 RBIs. That makes him the first player with 10 RBIs in the World Series since Bobby Richardson and Mickey Mantle had 12 and 11 respectively in the 1960s series for the Yankees. Hernandez is able to settle down after that. The Marlins take advantage of that starting the sixth inning when Sheffield singles with one out. That ends a streak of 10 straight bats retired by Hershiser. Benia walks and Alou hits a three-run homer to center. So Moises Alou really getting into the action with a three-run homer again this series. Alou singles back to Juden to lead off the eighth inning. He's still second despite possibly sliding off of the bag. He moves to third on a Conine ground outs to first and scores out Johnson RBI single. Benia doubles with one out in the ninth inning. is pinch run for and Alou has an RBI single. Hernandez misses first while trying to get Robert on ground out to lead off the ninth, and he is charged with an error. That was a ground ball to second. Vizquel singles. That prompts then to relieve Hernandez. Then strikes out Ramirez and gives up an RBI single to Justice, and then Deuce a would-be double play ball by Williams, but Council has a wide throw to first. That keeps the game alive, and that allows Williams to reach second. Tommy scores Williams on an RBI single, but Almar flies out to right. That gives then the save. And it makes Hernandez the first rookie since Spec Shea of the 1947 Yankees to win two series games. The Marlins win this by a score of 8-7. to seven. Uh, Gutsy move by the Marlins to try and keep Hernandez in throughout, but then is able to close the door. It was a controversial call because I thought Hernandez was able to get to the bag regardless. They rule Bip Roberts safe, and that helps spark a Cleveland rally. You mentioned the 8-7 to seven final, which I wonder if we'll have another 8-7 to seven final game at Jacobs Field in the future. I guess we'll see. But Moises Alou, I should mention, was doing his best MJ impression because he was suffering from the flu and barely able to play. So it's just so weird how twice in 1997 we have stars suffering from the flu in Game 5 of a championship series, yet they still both come up big. How crazy is that? The scriptwriters were clearly on something. But it works. We'll have to see what they have in store for the rest of this. Game 6's temperature is 42 degrees higher at game time than that of Game 4. Oh yeah, we're back in Miami. I should mention that. 67,498 are in attendance. That is the largest series crowd since Game 1 of the 1963 series at Yankee Stadium. That had 69,000. Kevin Brown is trying to redeem himself after a horrible Game 2. 
and the Indians just don't care because Williams walks to lead off the second. He advances with Tomey and Grissom walk and scores along with Tomey when, of all people, Chad OJ fouls off several pitches before singling for his first hit since high school. That's right, he drives in two runs on his first base hit in forever. Hitting pitchers forever. And Marquise Grissom makes a basket catch in deep left center on a Conine fly ball for the second out of the bottom half of the second. So you can tell it's the Indians' night. Vizquel doubles to lead off the third inning. He steals third and scores on Ramirez's sack fly. David Justice robs Conine of a base hit with a sliding catch to end the fourth inning. And OJ, he decides he's not done hitting. He doubles on the first pitch of the fifth inning. He moves to third on Robert Single and scores on Ramirez's sack fly. That makes him the first pitcher with two hits and two RBIs in a series game since Mickey Lowich did for the Tigers in Game 2 of the 68 series. And he's the first Indians pitcher with a series RBI since Jim Bagby's threw in a homer in Game 5 of the 1920 series. So, OJ having the game of a lifetime... Yeah, absolutely, and absolutely dealing as well. Allows the Marlins to get on the board in the bottom of the fifth. Darren Dalton with a sacrifice fly to right on a lineout. But that's it. He absolutely dominates, goes into the sixth inning, ends up issuing a leadoff walk to Gary Sheffield. Michael Jackson comes in, is able to get out of that, gets into and out of trouble in the seventh as well. Asenmacher gets through the eighth without any trouble. Jose Mesa, other than a one-out triple by Devon White, is able to limit the damage. The Indians win game six, four to one. We have a seventh and deciding game on our hands. Well, just going back to that sixth inning, Isenreich, who was pinch hitting for Conine, walked. Lou advanced the runners with a ground out to first inning, and Vizquel made a diving stop in the hole at short before throwing out Johnson to end the inning. So we've seen Vizquel in his two World Series appearances make some solid stops with his glove. So like you said, we are going to a seventh game. But no matter what happens, it is a happy day for Levon Hernandez. Because thanks to efforts from the U.S. and Cuban governments, as well as the entire roster submitting a written plea, he is able to meet his mother for the first time in two years before Game 7. So, already, Hernandez has won. Yep, wholesome. And, I mean, it's one of those, like, if you know how Hollywood seems to be, you know how this game is going to end. But let's go through this phenomenal Game 7. His mother, by the way, does attend this game among the 67,204 fans at Pro Player Stadium. As we find out on the broadcast, she leaves early for security reasons, which I can understand that. But in any event, Jared Wright was pitching on three days rest, and Charles Nagy would normally get the start, but because he pitched so poorly earlier in the series, he has been shelled for Wright. Wright is the first rookie to start Game 7 of the World Series since Joe McGrain did so for the Cardinals in 1987. Al Leiter, who is starting for the Marlins, retires the first six batters, but then Tommy walks to lead off the third inning. Grissom singles. Wright has a sack bunt. Fernandez, who is starting for the flu ridden Roberts, guess Roberts couldn't play through the flu the way Alou did, scores both runners on RBI single. So Fernandez, who contributed mightily to the 93 Blue Jays, is coming through for the 97 Indians. But Leiter has a pretty good game otherwise. He strikes out seven, gives up two runs on four hits and four walks over six innings. You can't really fault him for one blemish out of an otherwise solid start. Yeah, absolutely not. But Jarrett Wright is absolutely dealing, at least until we get to the bottom of the seventh. That's right, because Benia homers to right center on the first pitch. Wright is relieved by... Asimacher after giving up a one-out walk to Council, who ends up stranded at first 
Williams walks to lead off the top of the ninth inning. He promptly is forced out on Elmar Grounder. Felix Heredia relieves Antonio Alfonseca. He gives up a single to Tomey. So Neng comes in as part of a double switch. Grissom grounds to short while Renteria throws out Elmar at the plate. And Giles, who is pinch hitting for Brian Anderson, flies out to left center to end the inning. So we go to the bottom of the ninth. The Indians are up 2-1. to one, So the trophy is wheeled into the clubhouse and the plastic is put onto the lockers. The champagne is out just like it was for the 86 Red Sox in Game 6. But Moises Alou singles to lead off the ninth inning. He later moves to third on Johnson's single. And Craig Council, who will go on to have a nice career, but at this point is a rookie utility man with 49 career hits, drives in the tying run on a sack fly. Alou is the man to score there. So, nine eights is not enough to decide Game 7, so we have to go to extras for the fourth time in Game 7 in World Series history. And Fernandez singles with one out in the 10th inning, but then strikes out the side. With one out in the 10th innings, Bomb half, Renteria, and Sheffield have back-to-back -back singles. But Rob Nen's spot is up. Obviously, you'll want him up in Game 7. So, stepping in for him is John Cangolosi. He ends up striking out looking. And then Nagy relieves Mesa, and he induces a flyout to right. Jay Powell walks Williams to lead off the top of the 11th, but forces him out at second on Elmar Bunt and induces a 4-6-3 double play by Tomey. And then the bottom half of the 11th, Benia singles. He later reaches third on a Fernandez error at second. That is just tough for Fernandez because he's in the twilight of his career. is known for being a defensive star, but that error is going to hurt him. He does try to make amends by forcing Benia out at the plate on a white grounder to him after Eisenreich is intentionally walked. And then you have Edgar Renteria taking a first pitch strike. And then the 0-1 pitch, you have Renteria lying it off of Charles Nagy's glove. And Nagy watches that ball go into center field. Council scores, and he jumps in the air. The Marlins have won the World Series in their fifth year of existence. And let me tell you something, Lucas. My parents recorded the end of this game for me because I was too young to watch the end of this game because it was late. And I rewound this walk-off hit so many times to the point where Craig Council jumping up after scoring has been etched into my memory. As Bob Costas says, as unlikely as it sounds, the Florida Marlins have won the World Series. And he later says the men in teal are for real as well. It's a nice line. It, it's hard not to get emotional with something like this. You have pretty much a ragtag group of guys who were all brought together here, and yet here they are. They managed to make the late comeback in the ninth to force extra innings and then take advantage of the Cleveland mistakes and walk off Game 7 to win the first World Series in franchise history. Renteria has his eighth walk-off hit of the season, and he has that great jubilant celebration, but even happier was Jim Leland because we have that shot of him pumping up the crowd as soon as this game ends. And honestly, why wouldn't you at that point? Leland is a baseball lifer. He finally gets to the mountaintop as manager. You're so happy for guys like Leland who have been in it for so long, just haven't been able to get over the hump, finally do in this situation. Good on him. 
And I would be remiss at this point if we didn't bring up the local connection that I alluded to earlier in the episode. So at this particular point in time, one of the farm teams for the Florida Marlins is a team that was up in Wisconsin up until 1991, at which point they moved to Geneva, Illinois, and became the Kane County Cougars. It's a team that I grew up watching. I grew up 15 minutes from what was then uh, Philip Elfstrom Stadium, uh, now Northwestern Medicine Field. But on this Marlins roster, Charles Johnson, Edgar Renteria, Antonio Alfonseca, Felix Heredia, Greg Zahn, and Tony Saunders all played at one point for the Kane County Cougars, all six of them World Series champions. I grew up going to Cougars games as well, and I was not following baseball when all of these men were in Kane County, but I'm happy that the Marlins and the Cougars had a fruitful relationship for such a long time. And we'll see this again in the future, but for the moment... We are seeing old-time Cougars getting their World Series rings. But is Levon Hernandez not a former Kane County Cougar winning World Series MVP? And I don't think any of the locals are going to argue with that at all. From the local perspective, I get it. But I don't know that I agree with this pick. And even like reading through the YouTube comments of this uh, World Series film, there was some agreement here. So Hernandez does go 2-0 in his two starts. He strikes out seven batters, but walks 10, gives up nine runs, eight of them earned a 527 earned run average, which was just slightly below the team total at 548, just as points of reference. Kevin Brown 0-2 with an 818 ERA. Rob Nen, we mentioned he got roughed up in the one game. His ERA for the series finishes at 771. Jay Powell, who won game seven, finished with a 736 ERA. Tony Saunders had an ERA at 27, just to name a few guys. Antonio Alfonseca in three games did not allow an earned run, so credit to him on that. I mean, if you're looking at guys, my argument would probably go for Moise Salou. He slashed 321, 387, 714, had three home runs, drove in nine, a couple of doubles, went nine of 28, scored six runs. In a series with a lot of offense, I feel like that's probably where you should have gone. Now, that said, given the storyline and everything, the pick of Levon Hernandez does make sense. Yeah, and you could also make arguments for Darren Dalton, who had a 1.121 OPS, a slash line of 389, 455, 667. I mean, no pitcher really jumped off the page here. So I feel like that if you were to give to somebody else, it would be somebody on the hitting side. I definitely see your points there. But I should mention this as well. The night after Game 7, because the Marlins and the Miami Dolphins were sharing Pro Player Stadium at that time, they had to convert overnight the baseball field to the football field because the Bears and the Dolphins were playing each other Monday Night Football that night. And that game ended when Jeff Jager hit a 35-yard field goal in overtime that gave the Bears their first win in eight games that season. Yes, the 1997 Bears were awful. Eric Kramer threw for 343 yards and two touchdowns in that game. Raymond Harris ran for 106 yards and one touchdown on 25 carries. So the Marlins had to wait a day before they could celebrate their World Series back at the stadium. But hey, football is king in Florida, so I'm sure most locals weren't too upset about having to wait another day. Yeah, and I mean, just in general, like you've won a title. What's one more day in the grand scheme of things, especially since you got to see your team win at home? 
It's kind of similar to right after the 1994 New York Rangers won the Stanley Cup, but the Madison Square Garden crew couldn't really celebrate because they had to convert the ice to wood for the NBA Finals the following night. But all of this is going to be very short-lived. Huizenga makes good on his threats to disassemble the team in a way that would make Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause jealous. Because anybody who was making any significant amount of money was out the door. On Halloween that year, Jeff Conine and Darren Dalton's contracts were declined. And on November 11th, they trade Moises Alou to Houston. Later on, they trade Brown, Leiter, White, Nen, Cook. By the following season, the team doesn't resemble anything like the 97 Marlins. They go on to lose 108 games, the most of the NL since 1969. And I think my book puts it best. Their befuddled fans were left to wonder whether the championship had been real or only a strange dream. Now, there will be an episode coming up that will suggest that it wasn't. But for now, Marlins fans have to feel blindsided. If you're going to be somebody with a lot of money and you're going to buy a baseball team and invest in it, you know, truly invest in it. Don't cheap out after the fact. And I don't know, I just, it, it, it infuriates me and this will come up again. I mentioned this to you in a text, Lucas. A lot of billionaires can afford baseball teams. It doesn't necessarily mean they should get up off the couch and go ahead and buy one. And Huizenga is one guy who definitely should not have gotten off of that couch. And he, in turn, becomes one of the most reviled figures that we have encountered in our podcast so far. Yeah, throw him up there, you know, like you said in our text chain. You can throw him up there with the Marge Shots and Charlie Finley's of the world. I mean, Finley, definitely a little bit different, but still kind of there. Marge Shot, legendary cheapskate, and we went through that in our 1990 episode. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's If you're a billionaire, you have the money to be able to get away with this. Don't go and pull this nonsense. You don't deserve to have a baseball team. I should mention this as well. A future co-worker of mine's father was a truck driver working for Huizenga at the time, but I wasn't able to get any memories of this World Series out of my former co-worker, so uh, we'll just leave it at that. But if you want to read more about the 1997 Marlins, I highly recommend the book. If they don't win, it's a shame. The Year the Marlins Bought the World Series by Dave Rosenbaum. I read this book many years ago. And I don't think you're going to find a more comprehensive account of those 1997 Marlins both on and off the field. And it just goes to show you that even when your intentions start off good, they can quickly turn sour. And it's just a shame, once again, that this turns out to be a blip on the long history of good baseball teams. Indeed. So... Let's move forward to 1998. The most recent World Series champions from the American League are back, the Yankees. And they will face a team that has only been here once before, but they will try their best to get their first championship and knock off the evil empire. Yes, yeah, so tune in next week to find out what happens. So for Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our 1997 episode. Then there were two history of the World Series. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on what is still Twitter to us. Subscribe. We'll see you next time.